We are in a section of 2 Corinthians where Paul finds himself in a fight. Since we got to chapter 10, each week we've been saying that Paul is in a fight for the hearts and minds of the Corinthian believers. In Paul's absence, those believers have been dazzled and led astray by false teachers who've come into the church. And so in order to gain a hearing from the Corinthians, Paul has done a bit of boasting. He set out to prove that he is in no way inferior to the super apostles who've arrived in Corinth. That's Paul's tongue-in-cheek name for them. But actually, he believes that they're false apostles. But the Corinthians seem incredibly impressed with these new teachers. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Paul's boasting. But now as he gets towards the end of his letter, he turns the focus onto the Corinthians themselves. He wants to challenge them about taking responsibility. So if you haven't already opened your Bible, please open it at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you can see on the screen, we'll pick up at verse 11 and read to the end of chapter 12. In the church Bible, that's page 1166. Paul says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commanded by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have. And expand myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they, are, they have indulged. This is God's word. In this passage, Paul sets out three areas where the Corinthians need to begin to take responsibility. And in each case, it involves getting their thinking right. 
as they begin to think correctly, their actions will follow. Paul challenges them, first of all, to understand the relationship between power and weakness in the Christian life. Second, he challenges them to learn to recognize genuine Christian love. And third, he challenges them to realize why God gave leaders to the church and to cooperate with their work. So first, in verses 11 to 12, understand the relationship between power and weakness in the Christian life. Paul has finished his full speech, his boasting, and now he speaks about why he did it in verse 11. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commanded by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. Paul has felt embarrassed and awkward trying to convince these believers to give him a hearing. Instead of, I have made a fool of myself, a better translation might be, I have played the fool. And now that he's finished, Paul says, I shouldn't have had to do that. You ought to have had the discernment to know I was worth listening to. You ought to have been mature enough not to be dazzled and taken in by these super apostles. Yes, Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm not humanly impressive. But you ought to have known that human impressiveness isn't the important thing. Then having just claimed that he's nothing, Paul goes on to point to the powerful things that happened during his ministry in Corinth. In verse 12, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. What is Paul trying to say? In one breath, he says that he's nothing. Then the next breath, he's pointing to the powerful things that happened during his ministry. What we have here is a condensed version of the last couple of chapters. Paul is weak, but God is powerful. And God displays his power through weak Paul. Paul doesn't say that he did the signs, wonders, and miracles. He explains those things with what commentators call a divine passive. Those things were done, not by Paul, but by God. The two things Paul says about himself are that he is nothing, verse 11, and that he ministered with great perseverance, in verse 12. That's a reference to all the things we looked at last week. All of Paul's weaknesses, his thorn in the flesh, his imprisonments, the beatings that he endured, and all the other humiliating things that happened to him. When Paul first arrived in Corinth, he came to them weak and unimpressive. But through Paul, God did powerful things. The Corinthians all saw them. They can't deny them. And yet, when these super apostles arrived, the Corinthians have dropped Paul like a hot potato. They've rushed off to follow the new arrivals. Or at the very least, they've allowed the super apostles to gain authority in the church. What's the Corinthians' problem? Their problem is they're failing to understand the relationship 
between power and weakness in the Christian life. Their focus is only on the power. And they want leaders who look impressive and sound impressive and do impressive things. And so they're turning away from Paul. And they're turning away from him even though they've seen God doing powerful things through Paul. The Corinthians seem to have no place for weakness. And so Paul, with all of his obvious weakness, is a bit of an embarrassment to them. We might ask what the application for us is here. Well, we have to remember that power and weakness go together in the Christian life. More specifically, we have to remember that God's power and human weakness go together. That pattern was set for us on the cross. Jesus was not impressive as he hung on the cross. He was naked, struggling for breath, crying out for a drink, asking why his father had forsaken him. Jesus on the cross gives us a picture of complete weakness. And yet in that situation... God did the most powerful work of all. He opened a way for a holy God to be reconciled to his damned creation. The cross set the pattern for divine power to be seen in human weakness. That pattern continued in the life of Paul and the other apostles. The book of Acts presents us with weak servants of God who became powerful instruments in God's hands. So much so that their enemies described the apostles as men who have turned the world upside down. The New Testament teaches us again and again that God does his work through unimpressive people. And that ought to make us a little wary of leaders who seem to be all power and no weakness. We ought to stop and ask if the power that we're seeing is really God's power. Because we know that God shows his power in jars of clay. Now it's certainly true that God gives gifts to his people. Paul was very clear about that. Of all the New Testament writers, Paul is the one who teaches us the most about spirit-given gifts in the church. Some Christians are given great gifts of speaking and writing. They can present the message clearly and powerfully. Some Christians have been given great skills in organizing and mobilizing God's people. Others have the ability to just put people at ease and gain a hearing for the message. So the point here is not to deny that God gives people gifts. It's not to deny that God uses people powerfully. He did use Paul powerfully. And throughout the history of the church, God has used his people powerfully. So we're not to ignore someone just because they're popular or just because they have a big following. The point is, we need to learn to recognize God's power at work through that person. That means our attention mustn't be focused on the human instrument. Whenever we hear them or see them, 
Let's not go away saying, what a great person. Let's go away saying, what a great God. That's what happened when Paul was first in Corinth. That's how the Corinthians were drawn to Jesus in the first place. When Paul ministered to them, they didn't become enamored with Paul. They became enamored with Jesus. Paul pointed them to Jesus, not to himself. But now the Corinthians are being led astray, and all because the super apostles have pointed out that Paul is a clay jar. By himself, he's weak and unimpressive. Humiliating things seem to happen to Paul all the time. So the Corinthians are turning away from him and his message. One writer says they want miracles without suffering and triumphs without endurance. But here Paul is calling them, and he's calling us too, to take responsibility and understand the relationship between power and weakness in the Christian life. Otherwise, we'll be dazzled by human power. And we might turn away from the clay jars that God is using. We might turn away from the church fellowships of clay where God's power is at work. In verses 13 to 18, Paul gives a second area where the Corinthians need to take responsibility. They need to learn to recognize genuine Christian love. And that might seem like a very obvious point, but it's a point where many Christians fall down. Back in chapter 11, Paul explained the kind of love the Corinthians were getting from the super apostles. He said, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Apparently, the super apostles were using and abusing the Corinthians for their own ends. And maybe we think, well, then the Corinthians were idiots for putting up with that. But they aren't the only ones who've fallen for this kind of thing. When a powerful personality comes along, there are plenty of reasons why people will put up with abuse from them. Some of us just like to be told what to do. We don't want to be bothered searching God's word for ourselves and measuring what the preacher says by God's word. Some of us like to bask in the glow of someone who has a big reputation, even if they do exploit us. I can think of one abusive leader, and I can think of people who agree that he's abusive, but they say, at least he gets things done. He gets results. Their reasoning seems to be, it doesn't matter how ungodly someone is, if they can make things happen, then the ungodliness can be forgotten about. But the Bible presents exactly the opposite view. If you look at the lists of qualifications for church leaders in the New Testament, none of them talk about results. They all talk about the need for godliness in leaders. We're told that they're not to be greedy for money. They're not to lord it over the flock. They're not to be violent, but gentle. Not overbearing, but self-controlled. 
upright, holy, and disciplined. Look how Paul puts it here, speaking to the Corinthians in verse 13. How are you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expand myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? It seems the super apostles were lining their pockets at the Corinthians' expense. We've noticed before that in the ancient world, the better teacher or speaker you were, the bigger fee you could get. And it may be the Corinthians were willing to be taken advantage of financially because they thought it made them look good. We've got some of the most expensive teachers there are. We also noticed before that Paul didn't take any money from the Corinthians. That's not because he was against receiving support. But in a new area, he wanted to make it very clear that the gospel could not be bought. So he would present the gospel free of charge. To make it clear, the gospel is a free gift. But the super apostles seemed to be using this against Paul. Maybe they were saying he was a rubbish teacher because he didn't get any fee for his teaching. Or the suggestion may have been that Paul actually looked down on the Corinthians, that somehow he thought he was too good for their money. But here Paul says, my motivation is love. When I was with you, I didn't want to be a burden to you. I wanted to be clear what I'm really after in Corinth. Verse 14, what I want is not your possessions, but you. Specifically here, Paul is talking about their spiritual well-being, their souls. One writer sums it up like this. It's your salvation I want, not your money or your gifts. The message is, beware of church leaders who seem to care more about your money or your energy than they do about your soul. It can be very attractive to be part of a setup where we feel needed and wanted. But let's make sure it's not just our money or our time that are needed and wanted. And don't misunderstand, it's true, Paul is not afraid to challenge people about giving and serving. We've seen that in the letter. But it's clear that Paul cares about the people themselves. He doesn't just see them as walking bank accounts or ministry workhorses. And one of the ways that Paul makes that clear is by pouring himself out in service, not sitting back and cracking the whip for everyone else. We've seen before that Paul saw himself as a spiritual parent to the Corinthians. And here he says in verse 14, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, there were circumstances where Paul did emphasize the child's responsibility to provide for the parent. 
For example, in 1 Timothy, he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. So if we bear that passage in mind, we know that here in our passage, Paul is not talking about a rule for all situations. He's not saying that children can't help their parents. But clearly, he still sees the Corinthians as toddlers in the faith, or maybe teenagers in the faith. Spiritually speaking, they're still at the dependent stage. And Paul sees it as his responsibility to spend on them, not the other way around. So in verse 15, he says, So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expand myself as well. Paul wants his spiritual children to grow up to maturity and independence. He doesn't want to exploit them for his own benefit. And yet the Corinthians are confused about genuine Christian love. They don't seem to recognize real love and care whenever it comes along. In verse 15, Paul says, If I love you more, will you love me less? In other words, it seems like the more I try to express love by refusing to burden you, the more you're turning away from me. And they are turning to the super apostles, those who look and sound impressive, but who are actually only out to exploit and take advantage of the Corinthians. In fact, the Corinthians hardly seem to know what to do with sacrificial leadership. They cannot deny that Paul himself hasn't exploited them. But they seem to be suspicious that he's trying to take advantage of them through his co-workers. In verses 16 to 18, Paul seems to be responding to an accusation they have made against him. Picking up in the middle of verse 16. I have not been a burden to you, yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Paul says, look at the whole pattern here. Both I and my co-workers follow the same pattern. We spend ourselves for you. And what we're seeing here is not unique to Paul and his friends. It's another pattern set by Christ. Earlier we saw that the cross set the pattern of God showing his power and weakness. Here we see another pattern that was set on the cross. God the Son expended himself for a dying world. But even as he was there pouring out his life, men and women turned away. They mocked him. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. They didn't realize Jesus was spending his life to save theirs. They were looking for a different kind of Savior. One who would climb to the top of the pile. Not one who would serve at the bottom of the pile. 
Paul is a servant of Jesus. His life follows the same pattern of being spent for others. But Paul is finding that the Corinthians too are looking for a different kind of leader. They haven't learned to recognize genuine Christian love. So let's not confuse flashy leadership for loving leadership. Let's not mistake hard driving leadership for loving leadership. Let's not confuse leadership that sweeps sin under the carpet for loving leadership. It seems the Corinthians were making that mistake too. But Paul wants them to learn that loving leadership is going to care about sin. So in verses 19 to 21, he points to another area where the Corinthians need to take responsibility. Realize why God gave leaders to the church and cooperate with their work. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. There's the reason God gave leaders to the church. For its strengthening. Literally for its building up. It's the same word that was used in our reading earlier from Ephesians. Talking about the church body being built up. But what does that mean exactly? Well, it's about more than just benefit or help. It's about progress. As Paul has been going after the super apostles, as he's been challenging the Corinthians, his goal has not been self-defense or self-justification. He wants to see the church in Corinth progress. We've noticed already he sees himself as a father caring for his children. A good father wants to see his children not only survive, but thrive. He wants to see them grow stronger and learn to make wise decisions for themselves. But we know from what we've already seen in this letter and what we're told in 1 Corinthians, this fellowship is not very wise and mature. And so Paul is afraid that when he visits them for the third time, he will not see the progress he would love to see as their spiritual parent. In verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. We know how the Corinthians want Paul to be. They want him to be like one of the super apostles. Flashy. Someone they can brag to their friends about. And we know how Paul wants the Corinthians to be. He wants them to be growing in genuine Christian maturity. But Paul is afraid that everyone's going to be disappointed at his next visit. And he sets out the specifics that he's afraid of in the middle of verse 20. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, 
sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. All of this stuff has been going on in the church since 1 Corinthians. It was this sin in the church that made Paul's last visit a painful one. He explained that earlier in the letter. But what does he mean in the first part of verse 21? He says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. Well, surely he's talking here about the way a parent is humbled by their child's rebellion. Some of you know very well the pain that Paul is talking about. You know the pain of lovingly expending yourself in the hope that your child will progress with God. Only to be humbled as that child turns away from him. You find yourself wondering, was it my fault? Did I feel in some way? That's what Paul fears for his next visit to Corinth. It won't make him bitter. It will produce tears. The NIV says, I will be grieved over many who have sinned and not repented. A slightly better translation would be, I will mourn over many who have sinned and not repented. Paul has the heart of a parent. He's not out for his own gain. He wants to see his spiritual children progress. He wants them to leave behind the ways of death and grow in the ways of life. Now we will see next week that as a parent, Paul is willing to bring discipline. He's willing to use stern measures. But his desire is for their progress. He weeps over their lack of progress. And again, what we see in Paul is a pattern that began with Jesus. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, how often have I longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? but you were not willing. Paul followed in that pattern of parental concern for those that were under his care. And surely that's to be the pattern of all church leadership. God gave leaders to the church not to promote themselves or to enrich themselves, but to spend themselves for the progress of those under their care. And again, let's be clear, that will not necessarily mean the short-term comfort of those under their care. If Paul arrives in Corinth, and if he finds it as he fears he's going to find it, there will be extreme discomfort, at least in the short term. But if Paul has to bring discipline, he will bring it with tears. He will bring it out of love. And out of a desire to see the church progress. And he will be humbled himself as he brings it. Even the best church leaders are weak and flawed. But God-given leaders serve out of love 
for the men and women who are under their care. They long for the progress of those men and women. And they mourn when there is a lack of progress. Paul's hope is that before he comes, the Corinthians will see his heart and they will cooperate with his work. In their case, that will mean repenting of their quarreling and gossip and impurity and all the other sin that they've been indulging in. The challenge is the same for us. As elders, our calling is to expend ourselves for your progress. And as a fellowship, your calling is to cooperate in our work for your progress. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We're surrounded by all sorts of models of leadership. And many of them are not very helpful to us. We see leaders asserting their own power, seeking their own advancement, and exploiting those that they're supposed to be caring for. And sometimes we even see those things in the church. So we ask that you will give us discernment. Some of us really are very happy to have others do our thinking for us. We're much too impressed by human power when we see it. Some of us are the opposite. We have a hard time with any authority, even loving authority. So will you help all of us to take responsibility for our own attitudes? Help us to train ourselves to recognize biblical leadership. Help us to cooperate with it when we see it. Even when it makes us uncomfortable. Even when it calls us to repent. And I pray for the leaders in this church. Will you make us the leaders that you want us to be? Make us leaders who mourn over sin. Make us leaders who seek the building up of your church in everything that we do. As we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, help us to learn from the Savior who showed your power in weakness. The Savior who wept over rebellious Jerusalem and who poured out his life for our salvation. Amen. Let's respond to God's word as we sing Soli Deo.